I'd just like to welcome everyone who's joining us for our live stream today. It's only one part of our service here at Chelsea with City Temple. Uh, you can be part of the whole thing online just by dropping us an email, or you can come and visit us in person here at Chelsea Community Church. If you have your Bible, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Last week I did Hebrews chapter 1, so I thought today I'd do uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the Bible. I thank you that it is trustworthy and true, and I thank you that it is reliable to speak to us about the reality of Jesus and how you want us to live. So, Father, let your Holy Spirit come upon all of us that we would receive everything you'd say to us today, and let your Holy Spirit be upon me that I could bring your word to your people today boldly and faithfully to the glory and honor of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. The writer to Hebrews says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them his brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Amen. Well, I'm not much of a TikToker. I don't know if any of you are. I've thought about it a few times, getting involved with it, do a few TikToks, uh, maybe, you know, doing some sermon dances or something like that. Uh, see if we get a few views. I don't know. But I understand that uh, there's a new craze on TikTok, uh, and it sounds really interesting to me. Uh, the craze is called quiet walking. Quiet walking. So if you happen to be on TikTok, look up quiet walking. Uh, I hadn't realized I've been doing this for years. And in quiet walking, what you do is you go for a walk without your phone. You don't look at your phone. You don't use your phone. You go for a walk without your phone. And apparently, when you do that, for the first five, ten minutes, your mind goes crazy, and I think you probably start to go into withdrawal. And then after a while, apparently, quiet walking is quite refreshing. And it's kind of funny, because I could have told people that 20 years ago, but, uh, you know, nobody listens to somebody who's old and has gray hair and that kind of thing these days. So, uh, you know, it, it's so funny about our telephones, because the phones, they always, the probably the number one job of your phone is to capture your attention, to direct your attention, to control your attention. And one of the things I absolutely hate, and I try to disarm it every time I can, is the little red number that comes up. You know, when you have messages, you know, the little red number comes up, and you have these messages. And you know why that is? It's like the message, it's screaming, look at the phone, look at the message, look at the message, it's so important, you got to look at this message. And it comes up, and everybody wants you to do the notifications, right? So all the notifications come up. And you get the, you get, you turn off everything, you get the little buzz, and it's screaming at you all the time, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. It's worse than a, a little child sometimes. And the thing that mystifies me is how so many people are just controlled by this little device that uh, we guys, at least, we carry in our pockets. Uh, it, it, but it, it's just so controlling and dominating because it wants our attention all the time. And there's a clue in that. And the clue is that attention is our most valuable resource. Attention is a limited resource. And attention, I think, is probably our most limited resource. It's more limited than our time. It's more limited than our energy. It's probably more limited than our money, unless you don't have much money at all. You know, attention is a highly limited resource, and therefore, it's a commodity that everybody wants. Why does everybody spend billions in advertising globally? It's all about catching your attention. The adverts on the television, they're all about catching your attention. Everybody wants your attention. Everybody desires your attention. And we even talk about it like a commodity. What do we say in English? We say, I'm going to pay attention to something. That means you're giving your attention to something. You're paying it 
expecting to get something in return. But if we would go to the supermarket and we pay 50, 50 quid to buy uh, a bunch of uh, groceries, and we would look at the quality. We would check out the quality of what we're paying our money for, but many times we don't do that with our attention. Even though we pay it, even though it's more limited than our time, our energy, or our money, and we're paying it out, we're not often looking at the quality of what we're buying with our attention, of what we're receiving from our attention. And so we don't really understand, I think, how valuable our attention is. And consequently, we don't understand the price we're paying for some of the things that we give our attention to. In many respects, we're kind of like the little kid, you know, Dad, I want some money, I want some money, I want some money, or Mom, I want some money, I want some money, I want some money. And they're always asking for money, and they, they think that the parents, you know, are just kind of this fount of money that they can just keep lavishing out for whatever, and they don't understand the value of it until they have to work for it. And then all of a sudden, they don't want to spend their money. They want somebody else to spend their money on them. You know, and it, it works kind of like that. So everything, everyone is demanding our attention. But our attention is limited, and we cannot give our attention to multiple things simultaneously. Now, we have a lot of people talk about multitasking. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, I'm a really good multitasker. Do you know multitasking is a myth? It does not exist. You can look it up. You can research it. You can realize multitasking as we, you know, the idea that we're paying attention to several things at once, it's a myth. What we do when we call it multitasking, we do what we call task switching. And some people can switch between tasks quite, uh, quite quickly, but nobody can switch between tasks as quickly as they think they can. That's why we don't allow people to text and drive. You know, if you try to text and drive, it's worse than being two times over the drink-drive limit in terms of how it affects you. So that's the whole issue of our attention. We cannot multitask. We can't pay our attention to a lot of different things at the same time. Uh, and the other issue around our attention is that oftentimes the most important things demand our attention the least. The most important things in our world often demand our attention the least of everything. And that's why you have so many people who get to the end of their life and they say, wow, I've got all this money. I, I did all these great things but I lost my marriage, I lost my children, I lost my family. I wish I'd paid more attention to this or to that. Because the most important things in life don't always demand our attention. So we have to choose carefully. We have to choose carefully. And that includes with Jesus. Now, a lot of people, they don't want to pay attention to Jesus. People in our society, they don't want to give Jesus any attention at all. It's like, well, you know, Jesus could be important. I believe maybe he rose from the dead. Maybe he is the Lord. And one day, 
I'll pay attention to them, but maybe not today. I've got more important things to do. I've got other things to deal with. And throughout history, to avoid paying attention to Jesus, people tend to do one of two things. One, they'll tend to diminish Jesus' divinity. They'll say, well, he wasn't really God. He was a good teacher. He was a prophet. And so I don't really need to pay much attention to him. Or they will diminish Jesus' humanity, ironically. Because they think, well, he's God. He's way out there. He's not really engaged in my life. He's not really here with me. And so I don't really need to pay attention to him. And both things lead to what we call heresies, where people get false understandings of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Jesus calls for our attention. And the Bible calls us to pay attention to Jesus. The writer in the passage today says we need to pay attention to Jesus. We need to pay attention to him. We need to pay attention to him because he's God. We need to pay attention to him because he's one of us. He's fully God and he's also fully human. And so I want to summarize a bit rather than going through step by step what the writer says here because that takes us a long time. I want to summarize what he says with four statements. Basically, the writer here is saying four things about Jesus that we really need to pay attention to. And it's why, as well, we need to pay attention to Jesus. First of all, the writer says here that Jesus is trustworthy and true. Jesus is trustworthy and true. We pick up a little bit on what he said last week in chapter 1, but he said all creation testifies that there is a God. The fact we look at the creation, we can see there is a God, and that should call us to pay attention. But then also, as he said last week, the prophets predicted the coming of Jesus. There are dozens of prophecies that are virtually impossible to fulfill accidentally, coincidentally, or even intentionally on the part of Jesus, because after all, how many times can it be prophesied where you're going to be born and you actually say, Mom, let's go to Bethlehem before I come out? You know, it doesn't happen. You know, so he says, the prophets testified. And then he mentions today that it was the message at the birth of Jesus. The shepherds heard the message, glory to God in the highest. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And then he says, and the cross. The cross shows the just retribution of God. And one of the problems that we, we have when we look in a situation like what's going on in the Middle East right now is sometimes we think, where's the justice in all of this? Where's the justice for the Palestinians? Where's the justice for the Jewish people? Where's the justice? And we see the justice is in the cross. And the cross is big enough to carry all of this. All the evil of the world demands justice. And that justice comes together in the cross of Christ. That's what the writer is saying here. And then he says that Jesus made claims about himself. Jesus said that he was God, that he was God's son. That he said he'd die on the cross and he'd rise bodily from the dead. He said all these things. And also, he says that those who saw and heard Jesus 
attested the truth to others. They were witnesses. So there were not only the, the 12 minus Judas, but there were many women, there were many other people who could see and testify to Jesus. There were over 500 people who saw him after he had risen bodily from the dead. And he says that God himself is witnessing, is testifying about Jesus through signs and wonders, through miracles, and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gives to us even today. So the writer is saying here that Jesus is trustworthy and true. There's a lot of evidence that it's there for those who will look, for those who will see, for those who will pay attention. You can see the truth of it. You can see the truth of it. And the second thing that the writer says here is that this Jesus, who's trustworthy and true, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. So Jesus is not just an average human being. He's just not somebody on the sidelines. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. For a time, he became lower than the angels because he became like us, fully God, yet fully human. But he experienced the suffering of death and then rose bodily from the dead. Ultimately ascended into heaven. And God, because of all of this, God has made him Lord of the world to come. In other words, everything is moving toward Jesus and Jesus is going to be in control for eternity. He will be the leader of the world that is coming, the world, the new world, the new heavens, the new earth that God is bringing about. And God has put everything in subjection to Jesus. Everything is, it has to submit to Jesus. Nothing is outside his control, even if it doesn't seem that way at the moment. Even if we don't see Jesus actively in control of everything going on, he's been crowned with glory and honor. God has subjected everything to him. And so nothing is outside his control. Doesn't mean he's responsible for what happens. Understand? But nothing's outside his control. And one day we will see everything clearly under his control. And through Jesus, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, our God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's us. We're on our way to glory. So Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is trustworthy and true. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. So we have to pay attention to him. But also the third thing he says here is that Jesus is fully human. Fully human. In chapter 1, the writer was focusing on the divinity of Jesus. In chapter 1, the writer is saying, Jesus is fully God. When he walked on the earth, he walked on the earth as fully God. When he ascended into heaven, he ascended into heaven as fully God. He was the pre-incarnate word of God who became flesh in Jesus Christ. And he's risen with a, a new body, and he will stay that way for all eternity. He's God. But in this chapter, the writer is reminding us he's also fully human. 
In other words, you can't discount him because you think he's only human, but neither can you discount Jesus because you think he's only God. A God out there somewhere that maybe one day will do something. Jesus is fully human. We see this in that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now, this is a very strange thing to say. He was made perfect. And you, you look at that and you might think, well, does that mean that Jesus sinned, that he made a mistake, and consequently he had to suffer to pay the price for his own sin? No, that's not what it means. It means that word be made perfect is about completion. So Jesus, to be fully human, he had to suffer. Because if you don't suffer, you're not a human being. It's part of who we are, right? And Jesus, to complete his mission, to die for our salvation, had to suffer. That's what it means when he says he was made perfect through suffering. He completed his mission by suffering. He also suffered as we suffered as human beings. Jesus didn't try to go around suffering. Jesus embraced it and went through it, just like we have to do, just like we have to do. Then Jesus is fully human because he who sanctifies us and we who are sanctified are one. We're from the same source. We're united. We're united in God and we're united in Jesus in the flesh. We are united in our humanity. And Jesus, because of this, unashamedly calls us brothers and sisters. Jesus is our brother. And we're, and we're his brothers and sisters. And he can be that because he's fully human. He can sanctify us. And we can experience his sanctification because he knows what it is. He knows what it's like. He knows how to live it out. He says very clearly that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood. He participated in our human experience, even dying on the cross. Even the experience of death, Jesus knows what it is. He went through everything that we went through. He faced every kind of temptation that we face, except he didn't sin. He was fully part of us because he shared in our flesh and blood. Jesus was made like us in every respect, except without sin, so that he might become our high priest before God. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. And he stood before, and he stands before God on our behalf. And this means because Jesus is fully human, he understands us. He gets it. He knows what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land. He knows what it's like to lose a parent. Because Joseph died. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have his closest friends deny him. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to have to go to bed and take a nap or eat some food or use the loo. He knows all of this. He understands us. 
And because Jesus himself suffered through temptations and through tests, he can help anyone who is going through temptations and tests. He understands our struggles and our suffering, but we can pay attention to him. We can pay attention to him. And so Jesus is trustworthy and true. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Jesus is fully human. And consequently, with all of this, Jesus is our Savior. He is the Savior. No other one can save. Only Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we're saved than Jesus and Jesus alone. By God's grace, Jesus experienced death on behalf of everybody when he died on the cross. Jesus, therefore, is the founder. He is the source of our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in him. Through death on the cross, Jesus nullified, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, even though the devil's still around, even though he still tries to exercise some power, Jesus has nullified the power of the devil in the cross. And the devil has no more power other than what we tend to give him, which is way too much. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has delivered us from our lifelong slavery to sin, to death, and to the devil. Before Jesus, we were just going to sin. We were going to be afraid of dying. But Jesus delivered us from all these in the cross. Like us in every respect, Jesus has become our merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That high priest was the one in the Old Testament that represented God to the people and represented the people to God. He stood between God and the people. And Jesus does that perfectly on our behalf because he's fully God and he's fully human. He does this perfectly for us. Jesus makes and keeps on making propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big word. And for many of you, you may not have ever heard that word in English. And in fact, a lot of English translations, they like to change the word. They like to put something else there. But propitiation, great word. Uh, you'll almost never use it, but it's good to know what it is. So what does this mean? Well, our sin exposes us to and subjects us to God's uh, holy and just wrath. Because we sin, we deserve God's wrath, God's anger. It also exposes us and subjects us to the power of the devil. Our sin exposes us and subjects us to the fear of death. One of the reasons we all fear death, is or many people fear death, is because we're going to die and we have a sense we're going to give an account for how we lived our lives. And we don't really want to do that. And so we don't really want to die. And because we sin, it exposes us, subjects us to slavery to sin and slavery to the systems of this world. And all of this comes because of our sin. It's not the fault of anybody else. What you do against God is your responsibility, and it makes you vulnerable 
It exposes you. And we deserve God's wrath, but we also deserve the worst that the devil can bring into our lives and to be controlled by everything around us. Unless there's one who makes propitiation for this. By sacrificing himself and dying on the cross, Jesus wiped away the guilt of sins for all who received that offer of forgiveness. In other words, he got on the cross in our place, and what he did in perfect obedience to God took away all of the guilt for every sin that we would ever commit, including the sins in the future, as long as we receive it. It's not an automatic kind of thing. As long as you think, I'm, gonna, I'm not really that bad, I'm basically a good person, or as long as you think, well, I, I can really save myself, or as long as you think, oh, Buddha can save me, or Muhammad can save me, or something else, you know, as long as you're in that, that kind of mindset, doesn't work for you. You have to receive what Jesus has done by grace through faith. You have to receive it and embrace it because he's wiped it all away and he's fulfilled all the requirements for a restoration of relationship between a holy God and people by making us holy. So before he died on the cross, we had no really real means to be fully reconciled to God. But Jesus has done everything necessary for that reconciliation to occur. So we can have that restoration of relationship. And Jesus, by dying on the cross, he delivered us, he delivered God's people from the power and slavery to the devil, to sin, and to the world systems. He delivered us from those things, and he released us from the fear of sin, death, and hell. So when we say that Jesus makes propitiation for us, we're saying all of those things with one word. That's why that word is such a cool word. All of that is in that word, propitiation. Such an amazing word, such an amazing thing Jesus did for us. And Jesus does all of this in service to God, not in service to us. In other words, he does it not because we deserve it. He doesn't do it because we're basically good people. He does it because of God's holiness and God's glory, and God wants to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And he's determined to do that. And so he does it in service to God, but certainly it is for our benefit. So Jesus is trustworthy and true. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is fully human, and Jesus is the Savior. So what? Well, the writer tells us. He says, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. You know, it's a real danger. There are so many things demanding our attention, it's very easy to drift away. It's a bit like when I drive through the Scottish Highlands, you know, and I'm driving these curvy roads, and Karen says, oh, that's so beautiful. And I say, yes. She says, no, get back on the road. You know, it's so easy to be distracted and drift 
off the course, drift away from Jesus, who is actually the most important person to whom we need to pay our attention. So we need to pay closer attention to what we've heard because we don't want to drift away from it. We must not neglect such a great salvation and such a great Savior, but live accordingly by grace through faith. And we must surrender to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. To receive everything he's done means to surrender to him, embrace him, and make him the one worthy of attention. Because Jesus and Jesus alone deserves our full attention. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us, for dying on the cross. But even before that, thank you for becoming one of us like us, fully human, even though you were fully God. And thank you for giving us the Lord's Supper, a beautiful gift to remind us of who you are and everything that you have done for us in dying on the cross and rising from the dead and bringing us life. And thank you that as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, you are present here with us. So we love you and we worship you and we adore you. And we pray that you would attend to us now here at this table because we trust you, Lord Jesus, and we believe that you are true. And Lord Jesus, you are crowned with glory and honor. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the one in whom all things exist and for whom all things exist. And you are the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess your lordship to the glory of God the Father. And so we gather here and we worship you and we honor you and we submit you to you. And we choose to pay attention. Help us to do that every single day by grace through faith for your glory and praise that your life might be manifested in us every day. Attend to us now as we gather around this table, for we pray all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.